Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done over 560 of them now. If this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. For those listening to this particular interview with Jim Finley, you might particularly like to listen to my interviews with Cynthia Bourgeau and Father Thomas Keating. In fact, Father Keating liked that interview a lot, apparently, because he took a transcript of it and made it the first chapter of his next book that he wrote. My guest today is Jim Finley. Welcome, Jim. Glad to be here. Good to have you here. Jim is a contemplative practitioner and has been a clinical psychologist most of his professional life, and he helps seekers who desire to live a contemplative, whole life. Drawing from his experience as a former monk and spiritual directee of Thomas Merton, Jim offers trustworthy guidance for the spiritual journey through his website, online courses, occasional retreats, and the Center for Action and Contemplation, where he serves as a core faculty member of the Living School for Action and Contemplation with Cynthia Bourgeau, whom I just mentioned, and Father Richard Rohr. Jim is the author of several books, including Merton's Palace of Nowhere, The Contemplative Heart, and Christian Meditation, Experiencing the Presence of God. Jim has a podcast, which I've been listening to all week, entitled Turning to the Mystics. And it's for people searching for something more meaningful, intimate, and richly present in the divine gift of their lives. As I mentioned, Jim was a clinical psychologist. I guess you're retired from that, aren't you, Jim? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he offers a, a modern take on the historical contemplative practices of Christian mystics like Teresa of Avila and Thomas Merton. And I think he's going to do St. John of the Cross next. He's already gone through Merton and in the middle of Avila. Leaning into their experiences can become a gateway to hope, healing, and oneness. In each episode, Jim reads an excerpt from a mystical text, unpacks the meaning and symbolism, and then concludes with meditation and prayer. Together with Kirsten Oates from the Center for Action and Contemplation, they explore listener questions and examine their own paths as modern contemplatives in this beautiful and broken world. So, Jim, what we usually do at the beginning of most interviews is, you know, go over some of the biographical stuff just so that people get to know who it is they're about to listen to and, you know, what qualifies them to be saying what they're saying. You've told these stories many times, but perhaps you could just familiarize us with um, how your life unfolded and from an earlier age and how you ended up uh, at the Monastery of Gethsemane studying under Thomas Merton. I was born in 1943 in Akron, Ohio, the oldest of six children. My father was a violent alcoholic, and my mother was a devout Catholic. And so I think through her my faith was a sustaining presence in my life, kind of getting through all the things that were happening. When I was 14 years old, I read The Sign of Jonas, which is a journal that Thomas Merton wrote as a monk in the monastery. I was deeply moved by it. And for the four remaining years of high school, I just felt strongly drawn to enter the monastery and uh, seek Merton's guidance in finding my way to this deep union with God. And when I graduated, and I, I did that, I, I went there and I entered the community. 
1961 and uh, lived there for six years as a monk, a member of the community. For three of those years, Thomas Merton, in his role as master of novices, was my spiritual director. And so under his guidance, he guided me into this, the traditions of contemplative Christianity and also in an openness to all the contemplative traditions. Thich Nhat Hanh came there to visit him. The, the Jewish mystic and philosopher Joshua Abraham Heschel came to visit him. Sufis came to visit him, different people. So I got this broad sense of this, these contemplative lineages. I also had the opportunity to study a medieval philosophy of um, the Dominican school, Franciscan school, Duns Scotus and Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas. So when I left the monastery, I, I still felt called to live this contemplative way of life in the midst of the world. Let me interject a question here. Most people listening to this will have heard of Thomas Merton, but a lot of people might not know too much about him. So could you just say a little bit more about who Merton yeah. was and why yeah. he's so well known even all these years after his death? Thomas Merton was born in 1915 in France. I had one brother. His father was an artist. When he grew up, his mother and father were kind of suspicious of anything overtly having to do with religion. He went to Cambridge University for one year in England. The story is that he got a, a woman pregnant and was drinking too much and so on. So his family sent him to New York where they thought there were family members there to keep a closer eye on him. And at Columbia University, he started having a series of religious experiences there, which led to him being baptized as a Catholic and at 28 years old, becoming a cloistered monk, entering the monastery to be a monk. And when he entered the monastery, he wrote his autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, from the Divine Comedy, The Seven-Story Mountains of Heaven, and that work. Is, is that in Dante? Something? Dante, yes, Dante. He was, he was a literary major, so he was very big into literature and poetry and literature, the literary realm. And so through Dante and so he wrote his spiritual autobiography, and it went on the New York Times bestsellers list. And uh, he went on from there, I think, to write 50 books and became one of the best widely known and deeply respected spiritual religious writers, really, in the Christian tradition. In the 1960s, through his own ongoing growth, he started corresponding with D.T. Suzuki, and he wrote a book on, called Zen and the Birds of Appetite and Zen Masters and Mystics on the Dharma the integration of the meeting of these two traditions, and also a deep involvement with Sufism, these other traditions. And he also got very involved in social justice. He wrote a book called Seeds of Destruction, kind of exploring the work of Dr. Martin Luther King, anti-Vietnam, anti-nuclear movement. The Berrigan brothers came there and visited him. He was part of that activist movement from within the monastery. Did he get blowback from the church? He did. What happened is that the superiors of his order, the Cistercian order, they said monks shouldn't be writing about things like that, you know, but he it was an ongoing kind of arm wrestling thing, but he thought the opposite. He really felt toward the end of his life, he has a, an experience, he had to go into Louisville for medical treatments. There's a famous scene where he's standing at a busy intersection in Louisville, people waiting for the light to change. He said he suddenly realized he loved all those people. And at this time, too, he was becoming a hermit on the grounds of the monastery. And so he thought that his solitude was a way of radicalizing his union with the world and concern for the world. And so what happened then is he was invited 
to attend an international conference of Buddhist, Christian, Hindu monks in Bangkok, Thailand. And he got permission to go there because he thought it would give him firsthand exposure to the Buddhists he met with the Dalai Lama and other Buddhist practitioners there. While there, he was electrocuted in his room. Yeah, by uh, a faulty ceiling fan, as I recall. That, well, they say it was, first of all, there were rumors the CIA murdered him. It's on video. His last talk, you can watch it on video. He said, now I shall disappear. He went up to his room and, and they think he was going to take a siesta. Like there was a fan on a high windowsill. And he went to turn it towards the thing, and it was a short in the fan, and he fell backwards. It was on his chest. When they came into the room, he was dead and uh, 58 years old, December 10, 1968, same day Carl Barth died. And so that was Merton, who he was. So he's, he's just one of these people whose voice touches a lot of people. It has a very deep authenticity and depth to it. Were you still in the monastery when he died? No, I, I left a year earlier. So I got a call from the monastery letting me know that he had died. How was life in the monastery for you? Were you like a fish in water, or was it difficult for you to adjust? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I entered just before the Second Vatican Council, so there was a a renewal in the order. It's an order that traces its origins back to the 11th century, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, the Cistercian Order, which was a reform of the Benedictine Order. St. Benedict in the 5th century. So this is an ancient, was one of the cloistered monastic orders within the Catholic tradition. Yeah, like you were in silence and things like uh, that. Yeah, we, we didn't, there was no talking. We used a simple sign language. And it was the idea of solitude and community. We got up at 2.30 in the morning and chanted the Psalms. And so we sent the seven canonical hours throughout the day. So it was a life of aura et labor, like prayer and work and silence seeking this deep experience of union with God for oneself and for the sake of the world. There was this notion that in our fidelity, in our search for God, it radiates out and touches the world in ways we don't understand. I felt very much at home there, ahead of the silence, and then sitting with Thomas Merton. Then he introduced me to the Christian mystics, a deep reading of the mystics. And it really changed my life. It just had a profound effect on me, really. Were you thinking at the time that you were going to stay there your whole life? I was. I'd taken simple vows, temporary vows. And uh, had I stayed, I would have renewed them once again, taken solemn vows, gotten ordained to the priesthood. And then when you got ordained, they sent you to Rome for a licentiate for two years of study. I wanted to study philosophy there. So I was planning to stay, but I was sexually abused by one of the monks there. I was wondering about that. I heard you say there was something traumatic that happened to you yeah Um, yeah so that was the impetus to leave huh yeah i fell apart because i I was severely abused by my father and so i thought it was safe there i mean i thought and this monk was a priest and was highly respected in the community i had no refuge so the trauma i came in with which i never really looked at i kind of brought it in with me kind of reopened and i just had to leave i could just tell i had to leave so i left did that guy get busted for his behavior, or was he, he covered? I never, no. Got covered up no. or ignored? It, it ignored, yeah. Things have really changed in the church. You know, there's all this horrible stuff about the abuse in the church of clergy and so on. So I think the church still has a long way to go. Yeah. But it, it really is, is beginning to come into the clarity of the need to address this, look at the causes of it, to take care of that and so on. But back then, there was a complete kind of not being consciously aware of it. And so I, I knew, I just knew I had no recourse. I mean, I wouldn't have, no one, I, I just, I just knew I needed to go. So I, I left. 
Yeah, yeah I know with some people you can't even bring up the subject of Catholicism without them kind of starting to steam blow out their ears. And, yeah. You know, up so upset by all the stuff that's happened. It's always been a spectrum. I mean, there there have been on the one hand people getting tortured and burned at the stake, and on other on the other oh, hand, yeah. on the other oh. hand, you know, great saints, and so the whole gamut of. You know, yeah, it's the human. Welcome to the human family. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And really, I, I would say this: that uh, if anyone's upset about all this about clergy abuse, it's the priests. I mean, a lot of the priests are being faithful to their celibacy, and you know they're heartbroken by all of this. Complicated the the layers of historical ways how this happened. The same way at the monastery. I'm not saying I was the only one there. This happened to. But I think it's relatively rare. Really, most people. Thomas Merton, many others, you know, it's just part of the brokenness of the human condition. And we're always needing to look at it, address it, be honest about it. And uh, we're all like precious broken sinners, all of us. And wonder, we need to acknowledge it. You know? I wonder if it has to do with the fact that everybody in that position is supposed to be celibate. Perhaps a lot of people, you know, sign up for it and it's not their natural tendency yes, exactly. to be celibate. And so they're straining. and Exactly. For example, the Buddhist tradition is a celibate tradition. Like Thich Nhat Hanh, they're a celibate. Some of the yoga traditions also is a celibate tradition. But the thing is, instead of people coming into it in a mature way, as a calling, in a kind of basic sexual health within themselves, how do they sublimate that to deepen it into these unitive experiences? They kind of come in completely immature, unaware. And then when they get into it, this stuff uh, starts coming out sideways. They don't know what to do with it. And then there's a kind of institutionalized lack of acknowledgement of the importance of helping people understand this and, you know, it happened from there. So it's, it's in the process of being addressed and dealt with, but it's an ongoing part of the human experience, I think. Yeah. I know in the yoga traditions, by yoga we mean the whole Vedic Hindu thing, many of the great sages and rishis throughout history have been householders and had sons and daughters and the whole deal. But also in that tradition, there's kind of an understanding of what to do with that energy if you are going to be celibate, how to sublimate it, as you say, so it doesn't just get blocked with no outlet. Exactly. So in the yoga tradition, for example, they say the kundalini yoga up right. through the chakras, mm-hmm. and you, you integrate that libidinal energy yes. into this namaste. And the same is true in the Christian tradition. In the Christian tradition, in the Christian mystics, it's nuptial mysticism, you know, mystical eros. You get this training and guidance in that. But I think the more noble the aspiration, the more fragile the container that tries to be faithful to it. And so you people often don't get the guidance that they need to do that. And it's just, um, that's what it is. Yeah. Say that again. The more noble the aspiration, the more yeah. fragile it tries to be yeah, faithful yeah, to say, it. That's right. I'll speak of it in the Catholic tradition. So in the tradition of St. Benedict, it's in the 5th century. He was a hermit. He was living in a cave, seeking this life of solitary prayer. And he was inspired also by the desert fathers and the desert mothers, the stories coming through of Agrius and different people. And he had this kind of unitive state of consciousness, this kind of state of being deified. And when people recognize this transformation in him, that's how it draws people. Like, help us so we can find this too. And more and more people started coming, and so he wrote a rule, the rule for monks, which played a significant role through the Middle Ages. 
a feudal society and so on, the formation of the society. So the whole monastic ethos, the whole monastic aspiration towards transformation into this ultimate state of oneness with God, oneness with us in every breath and heartbeat, radiating out to touch the whole world. The nobility of the aspiration is held within the fragility of the social structures that try to maintain it. The weakness of certain people, the the lack of spiritual groundedness in those who are trying to lead the thing. So there's an ongoing, Thomas Merton once said, all spiritual renewal in religious societies is returning to the fire of the founder. Because it was a person who was kind of aflame with this realization. And we're trying to get back to the purity of the founder and how to be faithful to that. Because along the way, it tends to crumble around the edges and you fall into these compromised things. It's a, that's why I was so identified with Richard Rohr in The Living School, like contemplation and action. The new orthodoxy, which is the original orthodoxy of love, and fidelity to love be transformed in that love for the sake of the world. And so every time it kind of falls apart and starts to crumble, a new form of it surfaces somewhere else, and people gather around it, and that's how it, that's how it works in all these traditions, I think. There's several themes in what you just said, as I understand it. One is that, you know, as you begin to ascend to higher levels of mystical union or higher levels of consciousness or whatever you want to call it, in a sense, you become more vulnerable because it's a very refined, delicate state. And it's, it's like if you wear a, if you go into a coal mine wearing a black suit, you, you're not going to notice any smudges. But if you go in wearing a white suit, then it easily is, it gets smudged. So the more purer you become, the more careful you have to be in order not to sort of transgress. Is, is that what you were saying there? Yes, yes. And there's another thing here, too, and I'll share a story how, how I experienced it. When we're awakened to this, we get a taste of it. Sometimes we labor under the idea that somehow it's leading us into a realm of holiness that's dualistically other than beyond the brokenness within ourselves. Mm. And so when I went into the monastery, I had all this trauma inside of me. And uh, when I went in to see Thomas Merton, I, I was just out of high school. And I saw him as an authority figure. And I thought the trauma was behind me. I had the monk's robes on, my head was shaved, and I was, I was sitting with Thomas Merton. And when I tried to talk with him, I started to hyperventilate. I couldn't breathe. And he asked me, you know, what's going on? And I, my voice was shaking, and I said, I'm scared because you're Thomas Merton. <laughs> and he said to me, it was one of these life-changing moments, I worked at the pig barn at the time. We had a lot of livestock. It was a big farm. He said, every day under obedience, I want you to come into work early. And before you go to Vespers, I want you to come in here and tell me one thing that happened at the pig barn that day. And I can remember thinking, I can do that. Yeah. And I, I would go in and I'd sit down and it leveled the playing field. And by openly admitting the wounded place within myself, he brought me into kind of a compassion. By accepting it, I could accept it. And that happened to me over, and I see that a lot in therapy, too, where in the very, in the act of risking sharing what hurts the most in the presence of someone who will not invade us or abandon us, we can learn not to invade or abandon ourselves. And deeper down, in risking what hurts the most in the presence of someone who will not invade us or abandon us, we can come upon within ourselves what Jesus called the pearl of great price, the invincible preciousness of ourself and our brokenness. That's the paradoxical nature of the path, really, the laying bare of the broken place. And the light shines out through that broken place by accepting it 
big thing, really. Yeah, so Merton was basically, and one of the things he was doing there was he's saying, hey, calm down. I'm, I'm a regular guy, too. I can talk about pigs and That's you know right. exactly. ordinary That's stuff. Right. And, you know, I've got my uh, quirks and foibles, I imagine he was implying. This thing that we were talking about, there have been so many instances of Eastern gurus who come to the West and then get into trouble with various yeah. behavioral things. So it's not, obviously, it's not restricted to Catholicism or Christianity. And there's a similarity in that many of them were raised in sort of ashram situations without a lot of social interaction. And then they come here and they probably didn't realize, you know, various weaknesses and tendencies that they had within them that hadn't been resolved. And so then those things become their Achilles heels. That's right. And what's really, I think, significant, and I want to apply it to marriage for a minute to show that universal this is. When someone sincerely seeks this, but they have unresolved issues within themselves they've not addressed, and they have a certain charismatic attractiveness to it, and people start drawn sure. towards it. Yeah, they the, brokenness, the brokenness in that person will use that charismatic energy to exploit and sexualize the relationship. Wow. But I want to apply it a more subtle way how it applies to marriage to all of us. You know, it seems to me in marriage, to people, they get married because they fall in love with each other. And then when they get married, as they get into the trenches of it, they discover that each one brought in with them, you know, the internalized abandonments and traumas and so on, which they unwittingly start acting out on each other. And they either despair or they go deeper. See, So I think we're always sifting out and bringing the broken place out into the openness of love. That's the drama of transformation. You know, that's what we're always work. That's what all of us are working on. I think. Yeah, I also think it's the divine intelligence quality of the universe and of every experience we encounter, which, if we're able to accept it as such, serves as an opportunity for learning and growth, and an opportunity to sort of look within rather than just point the finger outward and say, "Oh, this person is behaving this way." And it's the, you that's know, right. They are the problem. That's right. And I think another side of it is, you know, on, on this point we're making, uh, Cardinal Newman once said that often in life our failures are more significant than our successes because our successes have a way of reinforcing our illusions about ourselves. See, our failures force us to despair or go deeper. But there's another side of it, too. Sometimes what happens, we discover we have a gift of creativity or some whatever the gift is. And we can't hold on to the impoverished impression of ourselves and open our arms to receive that gift. So I think the ego is always being broken open from both ends, you know, by being asked to accept the brokenness within itself to be transformed, and also how to surrender and be open to what the gift is asking out of you. It can be a way of channeling love energy and healing to the world and to people. Thomas Merton once said at the monastery, you, he said, we, you can't love and live on our own terms. He said, we should all get down on our knees right now and thank God we can't live the way we want to. And the humility of honesty, it breaks us open. And like we're asked to walk that walk. You know? hmm. That's great. Yeah. There was a rather amusing story of how you ended up getting married. I didn't quite gather listening to your talk whether this was the woman you stayed with throughout your life or whether you had a second marriage. But you, you got out of the monastery you asked a girl out on a date, you went to see Lawrence of Arabia, and then right after that, you proposed to her. Boom. <laughs> I came out of the monastery because I dropped out of the church. I took refuge in the Dharma. I was introduced to Buddhism through Merton. 
it was really refuge for me. I moved in with my parents. My father was still beating my mother. I don't want to sidetrack the question I just asked, but how did she tolerate that so many years? Battered wife syndrome. Battered wife syndrome. And also the Catholic Church at the time said it's a sacrament. You know, you offer it up, you do your bet like this. And also the person who's caught into the pattern of that, where he would apologize to her, then do it all over again. And there were six children, and it was horrendous. I had a similar thing, but it wasn't physical. It was more verbal with alcoholism involved. But there was always this passivity. Now, I think I should have intervened. I should have said something. I should have done something. But when you're a kid, you know, you, you, don't. you don't know better. That was that. So when I came out of the monastery then, I think maybe the very first person I ever dated, with Dr. Zhivago is what we saw. Oh, that was it. I said Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> I came out of the movie theater and I couldn't find the car. We were walking around trying to look for the car. Uh-huh. And um, I proposed to her. Before you and found her the car? Family was it, right there. Well, just, it was about a week later. We were at a picnic. I had a few beers and so on. I asked her to marry me. <laughs> and she came from an abusive background. I had no job. I had no money. Nothing. And we eloped to Monroe, Michigan, for justice of the peace, and moved in with my parents. And I'd awake at night listening to my father beat my mother downstairs. It was a horrible thing. I have two children by that marriage. So when I left that marriage, I got, when I got my scholarship for my doctorate, and I was still giving retreats through all of this on Thomas Merton and Mystical Union and so on. So when I got my doctorate in clinical psychology, I started integrating the mystical spiritual dimensions of life into the healing process, like what's that look like? And uh, as I worked through that process with myself, I, I left that marriage. I saw it was so destructive to my daughters, and I would like those two. So then what happened is in leaving the marriage, I was giving a retreat. It was really on Merton's Palace of Nowhere in the book I wrote. And a woman attending the retreat, it was on the dark night of the soul in St. John of the Cross. And a woman attending the retreat asked if I would see her for spiritual direction. And I did end up marrying her. So we were together for 30 years. She just died uh, four months ago. We were very close. It was very, it was a very precious relationship. We were both therapists and spiritual directors. We lived here at the ocean. And it was just one of these life-changing spiritual gifts to me, really. That's yeah. beautiful. Yes, I've been listening to your podcast. And in the early episodes, she had just died days before and you're making an episode it was very poignant let's shift a little bit we'll loop back into personal anecdotes and things but um you know we've already used the word god quite a few times and uh someone here elizabeth from colorado sent in a question asking is there something in the path of christian mysticism that is more or less equivalent to what is called enlightenment in buddhism we might also say hinduism they they use the same word have you experienced this or known anyone who has? So there's, there's that question. Something in Christianity that correlates or corresponds with enlightenment in Eastern religions. And also, I'd like to sort of get into your understanding of what God is. It's a, a word that has so many meanings to so many people, and if we're going to be using it, we'd better define it. We'll do enlightenment first. It's for a Christian corollary to enlightenment or to... Um... Namaste to the deep union that occurs in realized yogis. And is there a Christian analogy to that? And there is. And really, those who, who realize that experience are mystics. The Christian mystics 
are men and women who have been transformed in a mystical experience or a series of mystical experiences in which they mystically experience everything that they experience. And the mystical experience, Romano Guardini, one Catholic writer, put it this way. The mystical experience is the realization that although I am not God, I'm not other than God either. And although I am not any of you, I'm not other than any of you either. And although I am not the earth, I'm not other than the earth either. It's really a state where we and God cease to be experiences other than each other. And our ultimate destiny is infinite union with the infinite mystery of God as our destiny. And even on this earth, we can be awakened to it as this unitive state. And so mystic teachers, and like John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, Meister Eckhart, they offer trustworthy guidance for the person who feels interiorly called to realize that unitive state. So uh, Thomas Merton, when he started corresponding with D.T. Suzuki, the Zen scholar, and so when I read these stories of enlightenment, these koans, where the master meets the disciple, he says something leaps off the page at me and says, this is true. And I'd like to know if I, as a Christian monk, could talk with you as a Buddhist about the common ground. And so really that's what drew me to the monastery is that common ground of this ultimate realized, put it this way, I would put it in a Christian term. What if right now we could all close our eyes? with our eyes closed, we could be interiorly awakened. So that when we opened our eyes, we'd see through our own eyes what Jesus saw and all that he saw. What would we see? We'd see God. Because Jesus saw God in all that he saw. And what's fascinating about it when you sit with the Gospels, it didn't matter whether he was, saw a prostitute or his own mother, his executioners or his disciples a person of great wealth and power or a widow dropping her last coin in the box or a flower or a bird or a tree. Jesus saw God in all that he saw, and he said, you have eyes to see and you don't see. So if we could really, really, really see right now all that we really, really, really are, we see the infinite mystery of God pouring itself out and giving itself away as the intimate immediacy of all that we really are. That state, that vivid state, and the fullness of that state would be the unit of mystical experience. And then we can learn to be habituated in that state and translate it into love for other people. So it's very much at the heart. Thomas Merton once said that he said there's a lot of Catholics losing their faith and they're losing it in church because the church doesn't teach its own mystical lineage. People don't even know about it. But it's the lifeblood of the lineage. Like all the, it's, you know, in Judaism, it's Kabbalah. And in and, and, and Islam, it's a Sufi way. And Hinduism, it's this deep Raja yoga, this deep Bhakti yoga. All these traditions are traditions that pass beyond ideologies and theological formulations, what Richard calls the universal Christ consciousness experience. And that's, that's very much why I try to help people who are seeking this on retreats, and regardless of what tradition they're in. I interviewed a young man a few weeks ago named Aaron Abke, and um, he was raised by a fundamentalist minister, and he went to Oral Roberts University. And he found himself sitting there listening to these fire and brimstone sermons about what was going to happen to all the people who didn't believe what they believed. And then there was too much of a 
a clash, you know, between what he felt God must be and the fate that was supposed to befall all the people who didn't believe in him. <laughs> so he ended yeah. up stepping out of that and branching mm-hmm. out and broadening his perspectives. And we had, we had an interesting conversation. Thomas Merton once said, regrettable thing about the missionary work of the church is that all too often the Christian missionaries didn't realize the people they were converting were as holy or more holy than they were. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure some of them went to India and thought these yogis were just a bunch of dirty bums, you know. They (laughs) They were actually in a very high state. And instead, yogis were coming to Merton to visit, to meet and talk with him. He once said, the world will not survive religion based on tribal consciousness. He said, but if the people in each tradition will go to the heart of the tradition, which is this unitive experience, they recognize each other. And that recognition that they would speak out of that unity, religion could be a source of union in the world. Yeah. On the note of mysticism, um, when I hear the word, I think, well, you know, ideally there could be a society in which the norm was what the mystics have experienced the rare exceptions that we call mystics, that could be the, the norm for people. And then perhaps even in that society, there would be people who had gone beyond that norm. They were on, still a, at the edge of that bell curve, and we would call them mystics. But it's really a matter of what we're accustomed to. There is no reason why the deep experience, unitive experiences of the mystics couldn't be normative for human beings. We all have the, the instrument with which to have that. It's just a matter of developing it in large enough numbers, wouldn't you say? Yes, I would say there's there's an intuition that helps me with this. Imagine you're walking along the ocean shore ankle deep. It's true you're only ankle deep. And if you head out into deeper water, it'll get plenty deep soon enough. That's true. So in ego consciousness, there's incremental degrees of entering ever more deeply into ever deeper depth. That's true. But what if poetically we would say in this hidden center of the ocean is infinitely deep? And the infinite depth is infinitely giving itself away whole and complete in and as each incremental degree of entrance into it. So why do two people who have loved each other very much for a long, long time, why do they never tire reminding each other the first time they saw each other, the first time they kissed, the first time, is it not because unbeknownst to them, they were already in the water way over their head. And I think we're trying to calibrate our heart to a fine enough scale to recognize this depth and richness that's present in the simplicity of things and how to live in greater fidelity to that. Well, Um, some people, when they have a profound spiritual awakening, the first thing they say is, I've always known this. Why didn't I recognize it? So it's like unbeknownst to to them and unbeknownst to us and unbeknownst to everyone, we're already enlightened. You know, we already are that fullness of divinity, just not quite recognizing it. See, the thing is, I think this, another way to look at this, there's a moment, in a moment of awakening like that, we're momentarily enlightened. But the trouble is, it tends to dissipate. And that momentum of the day's demands and things closes in on us again. But we can remember the moment we were enlightened, and there can begin to grow in us a desire to abide in the depths so fleetingly glimpsed, and that's the path. See, how can I learn to keep the aperture of my heart open for a more habitual state of this oneness that I know is always there? And that that's, there's a, these are these paths of transformation in all the traditions. 
Yeah, it gets stabilized and integrated. Yeah, sorry. As a matter of fact, Patanjali has all these different Sanskrit names for different samadhis, and some of them pertain to you know the brief glimpses, and then there's ones that pertain to longer stretches, and then there's Nirvikalpa Samadhi, I believe it is, which is unbroken. It doesn't turn on That's and right. off. That's right, exactly. It's stable. It becomes habituated in the person. It's interesting that you were attracted to Buddhism, Although, you know, it's understandable because Thich Nhat Hanh came to the monastery and, and Thomas Merton turned you on to it and everything. But Buddhism doesn't seem to talk about God very much. Well, it does and it doesn't. They have these traditions of the world as theistic traditions. So the ones that trace their origins to the call of Abraham, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Also Hinduism, a Brahman, Brahman, Vishnu, and Shiva, Sikhs, Sikhs, so on. So what you don't have in Buddhism is freestanding transcendence. You didn't have in the Buddha this idea of there being a divine origin of all things. But what you do have in the enlightenment of the Buddha is the divinity of everything. That the Dharma field is pure and undefiled in all directions. Uh, That's why in the the story of Yasutani Roshis uh, in an interview with one of the monks working on a koan. And the koan is mu. You know, like you said with the word mu. And uh, this person comes in for the interview with Yasutani Roshi, and he's radiant. And he says, you look like somebody who just saw Mu, like you were awakened. And he said, now you know that seeing Mu is seeing God. By the way, also in Christianity, the freestanding transcendence in a way tends to disappear because it transforms us into itself and the union is realized so Merton was so quick to pick up these resonances or affinities between these traditions and uh, to follow the path that we're on, open to all of them. Elizabeth's question included the question, uh, have you experienced enlightenment or known anyone who has? Yes. In the way we're talking now, my, my sense with Merton is that clearly he had. He was a lineage holder. Shunru Suzuki, the Soto Zen scholar, the Soto Zen master, she said, the primary task of the spiritual teacher in these traditions is to give living witness to the seeker that what the seeker seeks is real. That is, you know your heart has not deceived you because you sense you're in the presence of someone in whom it's been realized. And I sense that in Merton. I saw him as a lineage holder of this ancient tradition all the way back to the, down through the centuries, back to Jesus spending whole nights in prayer and beyond. So I saw him that way and I, I asked him to lead me in that, and to my own awakening that I had and the effect that it had on me. Yeah, I hesitate to use the word enlightenment myself just because it has this superlative, static kind of connotation, like a, mm-hmm. a terminus point you reach and that's it. It's that's like saying, I'm educated, as if you couldn't learn anything new. You know? That's right. <laughs> you know, who uh, knows? Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, one of the Greek fathers of the church, had this idea called glory unto glory speaking of it poetically, is imagine you die and you go to heaven and you've been in heaven for a trillion, trillion, trillion years and you finally got the hang of it. You know, all the angels on a first name basis and so on. He said, then God pulls a lever and eternity starts all over again. Amen. There's no end to the endless, but the endless nature of the mystery keeps granting itself to us as every breath and heartbeat has that tonal quality to it, I think. Here's a question that came in from Paul in Santa Cruz. 
Having been raised Catholic, I am not drawn to mainstream Catholicism, or for that matter, Protestantism. However, Christian mysticism has always intrigued me. Is Christian mysticism, by definition, a solitary practice, or is there a denomination that focuses on the mystical mystical aspect? I guess it means, is there a way that it can be participated in in a group, you know, a sangha or a satsang? Well, first of all, there's both. You have a solitary dimension to this. But also, very often, it's actually, it's communal. So in the Benedictine tradition, for example, it's a community. You realize it within the community. But also what you have today for people in the world, again, the living school with Richard Rohr would be an example. But also a centering prayer. Father Thomas Keating, Contemplative Outreach, and the International Christian Meditation Society also. And so you can go practice this wordless path in a community of seekers in the Christian tradition seeking this realization within that tradition. That's why I came back into the church after I left. But I came back into the church, come back into this mystical Christianity, you know, and this mystical lineage open to all the traditions. So in many, probably the normative way, it, it is communal. And you can seek out those places where that practice might be and learn from them, listen to audio talks, different things, you know. Yeah, I want to make sure that everybody caught that because you said it rather quickly, but the the living school that you do with Richard Rohr and Cynthia Bourgeau it has a whole systematic curriculum that you can go through for a couple of years. There's a whole uh, curriculum that one can engage in, and so essentially you are doing a communal thing with a bunch of people that is totally focused on deeper mystical experience, right? Yeah, what the, what the living school is, it's a great program, really. That Richard and I and Cynthia Bergeau and then Barbara Holmes and, and Brian McLaren, they take 200 people a year and it's non-academic. There's no papers, there's no tests. It's all a commitment to a daily meditation contemplative practice and prayer. The, the, the reading of these classical texts of the Christian mystics and translating that mystical lineage into service to the world. And so you're in for one year, and they have dialogues with each other and with the teachers. And then we're improvising now because of the pandemic. We did it over Zoom last time. It went well, but it went pretty well. And then they translate into a form of service to the world. And uh, it just, I think it touches a deep longing in people to have no agenda but love. That is no agenda but to be transformed in this love, to go deep into the tradition and then share it with people. What sort of service? It's called the Center for Action and Contemplation. So in that little title, you're indicating there is some kind of action and service, and then contemplation, the inward stroke. But what are you talking about, working in food banks, or what kind of service? Let's say this first. Let's say the broader overarching umbrella here, say the Center for Action and Contemplation. So it was a movement started by Father Richard Rohr in this kind of... um, Contemplative Traditions of Christianity as a Franciscan priest. So it fosters fidelity to the deepening of contemplative prayer and then serving the world in different ways, different forms of social service and so on. So it's an open-ended with books and audio talks and retreats and so on. The Living School emerged out of that as this program that I just referred you to. That's where they accept people, they walk them through this, this chance to kind of mature and settle into these traditions and how to live by it every day. But the broader overarching 
of the Center for Action and Contemplation is itself a chance to listen to talks and read books and how to apply it to your own life and your own parish or your own situation. Mm. And there's probably an interaction amongst the members where you can discuss things. And is it? Yes, there is. Yes, of, of course. Yes, of yeah. course, yeah. So it sounds like the service aspect is a matter of one's proclivities and abilities, and you, you find a channel that works for you. That's exactly right. And in your case, it's interesting, you were a therapist, and uh, a lot of times, a lot of spiritual teachers these days are saying, you know, you may need some kind of therapy in addition to your spiritual practice, because your spiritual practice alone isn't necessarily going to untangle all the knots of trauma that could be an impediment on your spiritual path in addition to messing up your life in various ways. And yet people then think, well, how do I find a spiritually oriented therapist? Because if you just look in the yellow pages, chances are the person you're going to find isn't going to understand the spiritual path as you understand it. Yes, here's how I see it. Here's how I approach people with it. Let's say someone's a spiritual director, and they're coming to the director, and with their director, they're practicing methods of prayer, how to find God's experience in their daily life, and the path of spiritual direction. Then the director may say to the person, you know, there's certain things that are going on here with you. When you talk about being depressed, or feelings of self-loathing, or struggling with addiction, or anxiety with panic, attacks, irrational fears, and I'm not trained to deal with that. I'm not trained to deal with that. And therefore, I would think it would really be in your best interest to work with someone who is trained to do that. Now, there's two ways that can go with it. One, they could say, I'll still see you for spiritual direction. But all you want is a clinician who's a skilled clinician who knows how to work with trauma, to work whatever the presenting problem is. And I also think you're looking for someone if possible, they, he, he or she doesn't themselves have to be on this path, but they have to respect it. Yeah. They have to realize it. And once in a while, you'll find someone who does both. That is, you'll find a clinically trained contemplative person or a contemplative person who's clinically trained. That really what you're looking for, most typically, you have your spiritual direction, you have your therapy to work through the psychotherapy stuff, and those two points, those two merge at a certain point. You get past the symptomatology and you continue on. And so you don't really need a spiritually, but you need just a therapist who respects it, that knows his or her skill set and how to help you through these problems. There's a categorical index on, on bathgap.com, and one of the categories is therapists of various kinds, and there's some subcategories under that. So these are people who understand the spiritual dimension and also are licensed therapists and, That's right. and various kinds. So. It's good if you can find somebody like that if you need them. And by the way, you're mm-hmm. seeing more and more of that in mental health. Back in the day, if you do a word search for categories in mental health in the journals, it'd be hard to find spirituality. And there's, there's more and more of an acknowledgement of spirituality as a dimension or a resource in the healing process and, and the, the important role that it can play towards a kind of integrative approach. And Ken Wilber's work. On this, he's been a key figure, I think, on this integrative model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I bet you there have been therapists who would diagnose spiritual experiences and spiritual awakenings as some kind of pathology. If you're going nuts. You see angels, ooh, we would give you a drug. No, they would. They would. Yeah. But likewise, you'd find untrained spiritual people 
who have someone who's psychotic and told them that they're really seeing angels. Yes. yes. So we're trying to find a healthy balance. <laughs> you know, we're trying to find that healthy balance. Yeah. Between someone who respects dimensions of reality beyond the empirical, the non-objective, non-objectifiable dimensions, and respects them. And at the same time, at the psychological level, stays there. And the spiritually grounded person who, who sees the psychological as real in its own right and needs to be addressed at that level. And you're always working toward that balance. There was a story about Ram Das. He went to visit his brother who was in a mental hospital. And his, Ram Das said to his brother, he said, the reason that you're in here and I'm out there is that you think you're God, but you think you're the only one who's God. And, uh, you know, I'm out there. I also think I'm God, but I think everybody is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, well, speaking of God, let's get back to God. I think we could go subtler in terms of our discussion of what God is. Somebody sent me the other day a passage in the Bible which pretty clearly indicates the notion that God is omnipresent. That I think Jesus or some said, you know, every single blade of grass, you know, God resides in it. And also there's the omniscient part and the omnipotent part. So is Christianity as a whole kind of on board with that? Or would it again be the mystical subset that appreciates that kind of idea? You know, let's talk about this God, like the word God and how in the Christian tradition. Here'd be one way of starting to get a, a sense of it. Let's say one way to look at it would be to say that God is transcendent, ineffable, beyond all categories, beyond all designations. God's revealed as hidden, is beyond because it's infinite, infinite, the hiddenness of God. And the hidden mystery of God is revealed to us as intimacy, these divine relations, a subsisting relations of the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And God is origin. God is Abba, Father, patriarchal society, or Mother. God is origin. We'd put it this way, that ultimately just one thing is happening. The infinite presence of God is presencing itself, pouring itself out and giving itself away in and as the intimate immediacy of our very presence, the presence of others in all things. This is the God-given, godly nature of ourselves, others, and all things. This is not to say that we are God, but to simultaneously affirm our absolute nothingness without God. For if God would cease creating us into this present moment at the count of three, we would vanish, because we're nothing, absolutely nothing, apart from God's self-donating act pouring itself out as our reality itself. But it's our very nothingness without God that makes our very presence to be the presence of God. To experience that is the religious experience. And since love is the overflowing fullness of presence, just one thing is happening. The infinite love of God is pouring itself out and giving itself away as the intimate immediacy of ourselves. So that love is our origin, love is our sustaining ground, and love is our destiny. And that's God, that God is love. So if God is omnipresent, can there be anything other than God? There is. In relative consciousness of relative reality, everything's other than God. That is, the, the universe it can be understood in relative consciousness of relative reality as being distinct from God. Uh, the ocean, the trees, the palms of my hands, uh, the view out the window. But the, the ultimate ground of everything that I see is God's manifested presence giving itself to me as each thing that I see. 
But are things really distinct from God, or is it due to an incompleteness of vision that they appear distinct? Whereas, in fact, if our vision were complete, we would see that God pervades this cup as much as some transcendental yeah. ground. No, it's distinct. It's, it's, it's indistinction and distinction, distinction and indistinction. It's not monism. It's not as if really there's just one thing, God. And it's only through illusion we think there's anything other than God. Is it that ultimately speaking, the infinite reality of God is giving itself away as the reality of everything? And yet that divinely given divinity of everything stands on its own as distinctly real in its groundedness in God. So you and I are really here now having our conversation. We're real in relative consciousness. There's an integrity to this, a reality to this. But if we go down into the depths of who we are, deeper, 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 the more we get down into the depths of ourselves, the depths of ourselves drops down into the bottomless abyss of God, welling up and giving itself away as of having this conversation. And so it's like that. So each each level is allowed to stand on its own for the reality that it is, but it's fully understood in, re, in relationship to this interpenetrating pattern, the holiness of ordinary experience. I think what I'm thinking, or what I would say, is that. All these levels, we could say knowledge is different at, at different levels of consciousness or reality is different at different levels or, and so on. But if you could appreciate any level deeply enough, you would see that that which is in the depths is also on the surface. There ultimately is no deep or, or, or shallow. It's all one ocean. So that's what I meant earlier by saying poetically. What if the ocean and its hidden center is infinitely deep? And it's infinitely giving the infinite depths of itself away, holding complete as each incremental degree of entrance into it. Then even in the shallow water, you're in water way over your head, which is the religious experience. It's a sense of amazement or wonder, like the, the boundaries fall away. It's this unspeakable holiness of the, of the immediacy of the gift of the moment, the beating of our heart, our breath. Yeah. And don't mystics say, maybe some of the mystics that you're going to cover in your podcast that they do see God in everything. They look at the cup or they look at the cat or at the horse or at the wall or something, and they can, you know, they're not just seeing the material thing. They see that, but also they see its essential reality, which is God or divinity or consciousness. Yeah, I like the saying that Carl Jung said somewhere. He said, how can we claim the years have taught us anything if we've not learned to sit and listen to the secret that whispers in the brooks? So if I look at a fire, for example, in ego consciousness, I see a fire. But if I gaze into the flames, in that contemplative gazing of the flames, I sense in the flames the intimations of the holiness and the mystery manifesting itself as this, as this flame. And that's why I think when we try to talk about it, we're trying to grab it in words. But more when we sit in, in meditative silence infused with love, with a state of wonder, we intimately taste directly for ourselves, for which no words can be found. And I think that's the key to this. This is why we long for the experience of what our words are alluding to and how to stabilize in it and share it with people. And that's true of everything. I mean, you know, you and I could yeah. talk about some exotic fruit that neither of us has tasted. Like, let's say we've not, neither of us ever had a mango and we've read books on mangoes. We've seen movies about mangoes. We've heard all this stuff, but we have no idea what they taste like until we actually taste one <laughs> that's exactly right 
St. John of the Cross says somewhere, he says in the dark night, imagine someone who is born blind and you would tell them about the color yellow. Faith comes through hearing. So they would believe the color yellow exists. Mm -hmm. But because they were born blind, they'd have no substantial knowledge of what yellow is. This is what all our language of God is about. We say God is eternal. He said, but we don't know what this means. We don't know what it means. Although we can't grasp what it means, we can realize what it means when it grants itself to us in the unitive experience of tasting the contemplative moment. I want to ask you about faith, but I want to use your fire analogy just to make one more point here and see what you say about it. And that is, let's say we're looking at a, a campfire or something. We could see a nice warm fire, roast some marshmallows. But if we actually consider what we're looking at, there are these chemical reactions which abide by certain intelligent, orderly laws of nature that are converting a log into gases and so on. And, you know, going subtler, there are atomic levels there that are going on. And each of those little atoms, uncountable trillions of them, is abiding again by certain laws of nature and and functioning in an orderly way. When I contemplate that sort of thing, I think it's all God. Everything from the the galaxies to the tiniest microcosm is this play and display of divine intelligence keeping the whole thing, orchestrating the whole thing. See, that's that's why, see, say say science is a spiritual path, for example. Mm -hmm. See, science at one level, empirical science, it makes direct objective observations that are quantifiable. Right. And you can subject them to equations and formulations and theorems and, and so on. But the truth of science, you know, to know the truth of science is to know this is my, this is uh, Einstein mm-hmm. on wonder or the empower of the imagination. The truth of science is what energizes the scientist as a path to the truth. But the truth of science transcends the sum total of all the truths of science. But the truths of science themselves are filled with wonder. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the intricate, the utterly intricate unfolding mandala of the phenomenal world, and to learn to appreciate it and respect it. And sure. A lot of scientists are, are mystics because they come up with their theories in a, in a sort of a mystically cognitive way. When Sir Arthur Eddington went to um, Africa to view a, a solar eclipse and verify the bending of starlight, which confirmed Einstein's general theory of relativity, some reporter said to Einstein, well, what would you do if the theory had been disproven wrong? And Einstein said, I would have been sorry for the dear Lord. The theory is correct. <laughs> yeah. And that's why they often say theoretical physicists will say the truth of it, say quantum mechanics for simple, mm-hmm. is that if the theory is elegant. Yeah. If it's elegant, see, that's where they get that sense of intimations of the manifestation of something. It's revealed to us this way, yeah. So how would you compare, let's say, a mystic who has belief in some deeper realities or belief in God, faith in God, with a scientist who doesn't yet have any evidence for a hypothesis that he has formulated, but has faith that it's a good hypothesis and that it's worth putting time and energy into. I'll share with you a story, uh-huh. true experience. Just a couple months after I got my doctorate, I was just starting my private practice. And I was on a plane because I fly around the country giving these silent contemplative retreats. I was going to retreat on Meister Eckhart. And I was sitting in an aisle seat and the man sitting next to me, uh, I was just 40 years ago, elderly gentleman, my age now. <laughs> and uh, 
my handwriting, I had the sermons of Meister Eckhart open and with my fountain pen, I was writing, I have terrible handwriting. And he said, pardon me, I don't even mean to interrupt, but he said, what language is that? <laughs> and I said, it's English. And I said, I was going to give this retreat on Meister Eckhart and I was, I was a psychologist and, and, uh, and so on. And he said, well, he said, he, he was an Israeli Jew who taught physics at a major university. And he said, I myself see no proof for the existence of the non-empirical. And you know, when someone questions your worldview, I was going to say to him, well, if there's no empirical proof for the existence of the non-empirical, is it also true there's no empirical proof for the non-existence of the non-empirical? Good point. That is, the evidence would have to be commensurate with what's evidence of. I didn't say it, and because I told him I was a therapist. I didn't tell him I'd just been a therapist for three weeks. Uh-huh. He said, do you mind if I ask you a question? I said, no. He said, my wife and I had one daughter, and she was in doctoral work. She was a brilliant young woman, and she was killed. And he said, my wife and I were devastated by it. He said, we still are. He said, we've set up a trust in her honor. So in perpetuity, anyone getting a doctorate in that field would always have a free PhD. And then he said, but regarding the trust, he said, it helps, but it doesn't. And we flew along together talking about that. I would say in my language, the holiness of the moment, the God's the infinity of the holiness of our interaction, like that. But if I would say to him, have you ever considered deep Torah study? Or, you know, I was so touched by Martin Buber, which owner about I am thou would help you. I would be disrespecting his world. That's why there are some people who aren't religious at one level, yet they hold a deep religiosity at a very deep, intimate level of themselves. And when the conversation was over, as I was getting my bag and so on, he said, thank you. And I said, thank you back. I've often thought about him. And that's why I think what I like about therapy appeals back the layers. You get to this vulnerable moment where you come up from behind the curtain and try to stammer out something for which you have no words for. And I think when you're with somebody like that, you're on holy ground. And I think God is the name that we give for that. Yeah, your story brings up a good point, which is Christ often alluded to when he mentioned not throwing pearls before swine, although swine is a little bit of an insulting term. To the swine. But the point is, yeah, the point is that obviously there has to be a certain receptivity and it helps to teach to the level of receptivity that you find in the person. I do, yeah. That's what I always think is if we're, let's say we've been touched by this way in whatever way. (laughs) And we want to share it with somebody. It's very hurtful sometimes, especially if the person that you know, you try to share it and they just look at you funny. Yeah. You know, and it, there's a solitude about it. And it really hurts if they make a disrespectful remark towards it. And so I think we're always watchful over knowing whom we disclose it with is someone who's receptively open to it. And likewise, we return the favor and never speak in a disparaging way. Yeah about something sincerely shared that has touched somebody. And uh, that's big, I think. And these days, there's lots of interesting, I mean, with, you know, the advances in modern medicine, for instance, a lot of people are having near-death experiences who would have died before. And they come back and they tell about their experience, and there's thousands of accounts like this. Um, And it's it's kind of interesting. It it gives you a it thins the veil, I would say, between this side and the so-called other side. And uh, so there's there's tidbits like that that one can use to perhaps assuage the grief of of someone who has lost somebody. I love Gabriel Marcel, says some other philosopher. 
He says, we know we've learned to love someone when we've glimpsed in them that which is too beautiful to die. Nice. So it's the deathless beauty of the beloved. So although the beloved is dead in manifested reality, the deathless beauty of the beloved, you intuit, is still very much with you in the unseen foundational interplay of your souls with each other that you shared when you were together in the body. That's why in my own life right now, I'm thinking writing reflections on the way of the widower. Like widowhood is a spiritual path. Because the veil between life and death starts to become more ephemeral or diaphanous. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a certain contemplative, mystical, tonal quality to that sensitivity. The ancestors, the intermingling of the, of the living and the, who we call dead. Yeah. Who we're going to be joining here in just a few minutes. You know, we'll be we're all crossing. <laughs> right. We're all on our here way Here comes over. the meteor. <laughs> <laughs> How's that go for certain indeed is death for the born and certain is birth for the dead. Therefore, over yeah. the inevitable, you should not grieve. Here's some questions yeah. that came in. This is some angel from Barcelona asks, um, could James suggest ways by which I could directly experience God? Most of the time it is suggested that a direct experience is something that will happen spontaneously with grace. I am a regular meditator, and I intellectually understand that I am part of God, like you and I have just been discussing, and that everything is God, but she wants the direct experience. Who doesn't? Yeah, my wife said, who doesn't? (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of people don't, but... (laughs) Yeah, really. People are lying. Well, they don't think they do, but they actually do. I think questions like this, these are the real questions. And I say they're right at the verge of spiritual direction because this person I would have to have a dialogue and what she means and sit with it. But I'll make an initial response to it. I want to pretend that I'm God talking. And I heard telling me that she'd like to have a direct experience of me. Okay. And I say to her, you know, that's lovely. Really, I'm, I'm touched by that. As a matter of fact, I'm the one that's placing in your heart the desire to have a direct experience of And what I'd like to suggest to you is this. If you sit very, very still, the sincerity of your desire to have a direct experience of me is already the beginnings of the direct experience of me. Because that desire arises as a gift in your heart. And if you just keep staying open and keep leaning into it and keep the heart wide open to be ready for unforeseeable things, it'll keep emerging. And some of the the quickenings of your heart and seeing me might come when you're not praying at all. It might come in unexpected little flashes. And so a lot of it is so extremely subtle or delicate. It's like this. The essential never imposes itself. The unessential is constantly imposing itself. But we can learn by a higher order imperative of our awakened heart to keep ourselves open to the intimate immediacy of the subtlety of our desires and start to see already the beginnings of what we're looking for there. I think that would be one way to start. In your podcast, you mentioned eight themes in Thomas Merton's work. And uh, one of them was the fact that if you're seeking God, it means you've already found him. In other words, if you're interested in this stuff, you're getting warmer. <laughs> you're getting close. That's right. And he says, worried he's deeper still, he's already found you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I like that. And the fact that she's meditating is good. I, I'm a big advocate of that. I, there's different kinds of meditation, but basically if you found an effective form of it, it continually refines the instrument through which you experience anything, you know, much less God. But when it gets refined enough, then the possibility of God consciousness begins to dawn. 
And by the way, I think she's really hitting on something, too, in the sense that a lot of the path is this. We've gotten a taste of the desire to experience God. And then we realize the, un- the, the unconsummated longing to experience God is unconsummated. And a lot of the path is ongoing obediential fidelity to the unconsummated longings. Because as we sit with it, God unexpectedly consummates the unconsummated uh, in our bodies, in silence, in all different ways. We're surprised by the unexpected nearness of it when it happens. And we just need to stay open and receptive and stay on the path, I think. Yeah. Was it Jesus who said that the kingdom of heaven sneaks up like a thief in the night or some such thing? Yeah, it it comes like a thief in the night. Death. He said the death comes like a thief in the night. But also we'd say that death then is the great teacher, because also likewise your point's well made. The awakening you're looking for comes like a thief in the night. It does. And I think a lot of times if if you've been on a spiritual path for a long time, it's been growing subtly and incrementally. It's not flashy. It's there's no big contrast. And yet if you if you could step back to where you were ten or twenty years ago, the contrast would be unbearable Sorry. and extreme. Tammy Simon had a, she called it a meditation summit. It was a very nice series she did at meditation teachers in different traditions, and I, I shared one of those. I'll share an example that I gave out of meditation. When we start to meditate, say searching for this experience, we're searching for something. What we don't expect is the unexpected nearness of what we're searching for. And, I, and here's the example I give. So let's say we're sitting in meditation, still and straight, and uh, when I do these meditation retreats, you look down the rows of people sitting, you see a lot of people nodding off like this. <laughs> and I tell people, that really gets to God, by the way. He goes, oh, gosh, that gets to me. <laughs> so I see you sincerely seeking me like this. Here's the image. Imagine a little baby crying, and the mother's holding the baby. It's crying, 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 and it finally stops. She takes the baby in, puts it in the bed. And she eases her hand out from under the baby, being careful not to wake it up. The thought I have is that when we meditate, when we realize we're stooping forward like this, we should renew the straightness of our posture with the delicacy with which the mother slides her hand out from under the baby. Because God's the infinity of that delicacy. We don't expect that what we're looking for is in the immediacy of such simple things as that which is the essence of nonviolence. So often it doesn't come in a firestorm or some big event, but it comes of being surprised by the inscape of an utterly simple act that is luminous and simple, and it, we get a taste of it like that. I think a lot of the interior path has to do with kind of habituated sensitivity to things like that. This thing about nodding. I taught, I don't know, maybe over 100 meditation retreats myself back in the day, and a lot of fatigue would come out. You know, you'd be on a long meditation retreat for a weekend, you're not used to the usual stimulation. And I had people sometimes lie down on the floor and take a nap during a meeting just because they were just overcome with fatigue. So it's good to let the fatigue come out. I mean, every afternoon before I meditate, I lie down and take a little nap for a while, and then, I, then I'm all nice and fresh and have a better meditation. So you got to respect the physiology. You know, Rabbi, there's a story in Hasidism and Modern Man, Heschel's book. And he, one of his stories is that he said there was a rabbi, Rabbi Schmelk. And Rabbi Schmelk tried to become holy by reading the Torah without stopping. 
And when he started falling asleep, he'd hold a little candle between his fingers and it would burn it, wake him up. Yikes. And it says things didn't go well for Rabbi Schmelk. So a friend finally convinced him to go to sleep. And he was so sleepy, he overslept. So when he woke up, he was already late for services at temple. And when he walked in, he was asked to sing from the parting of the Red Sea. And as he sang about the parting of the Red Sea, everyone in the room had to lift the hems of their robes to keep them from getting wet from the waves splashing up to the right and to the left. So out of the holiness of accepting the godly nature of sleep that was released in him, this energy that touched everybody in the room. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of the Gita, there's a verse in there which says, this yoga is not for him who sleeps too much or too little, who eats too much or too little. It's the kind of the middle way balance approach. Yeah, to, it's true. Yeah. yeah, respecting the physiology. Here's a couple of questions that I can roll into one. The first part is from Suzanne. Is suffering a necessary element on the path to awakening? And the second part of it is about how a mystic, Christian mystic understands the crucifixion and resurrection because obviously there was some suffering involved in that, in the crucifixion part. Is it literal, historical, or symbolic, or both? Maybe I should have asked these questions one at a time, but I'm sure you can handle it. Well, let's say first, I, I would not have to know more what she means, but the question is what obstacles on the path to enlightenment? Or well, suffering. Path? Is suffering a necessary element? Do you have to suffer? I mean, obviously, there have been monks who have inflicted suffering on themselves, you know, wearing hair shirts and beating themselves with birch branches and doing all this austerity. And same thing in India, sitting on beds of nails. Is that at all conducive to awakening? It tends not to be. Let's put it this way. Asceticism, the art of asceticism, that is the art of denying ourselves at one level to break through to a deeper level, is part of the path. We see that all the time, even in love sometimes. We have to deny ourselves at a certain level to be more fully loving at a deeper level. But sometimes uh, ascetical acts, penances and so on, for their own right, tend to be ego-driven and tend not to be all that helpful. So really what we're trying to do is how to die to or let go of patterns in our mind and heart that violate love and violate openness. So the true asceticism is the asceticism of um, dying and letting go of these patterns within ourselves. We bring that to prayer, I think, that same attitude of kind of openness. And, and then the suffering lies, there's a kind of unproductive suffering, but there's the sweet suffering, a suffering, the unconsummated longing that you're powerless to realize that without which your life is forever incomplete, and you, quote, suffer it, that is, you undergo it, with love. And so this whole question of suffering is, is subtle, I think. Let me ask it this story. way. You were traumatized as a kid, and then you worked as a therapist all your life, and you dealt with a lot of traumatized people. You have whole audio series on trauma and so on and so forth. Trauma, as I understand it, gets bottled up in us, so we might not even be aware that it's there. Is there inevitably going to be some suffering as the bottle gets uncorked and the stuff has to start getting resolved and come out in order for us to progress spiritually or even be a, a normally adjusted person in regular life. You know, let's say first trauma, say, is a life-threatening, overwhelming event. And when it's actually happening, we're out of control. You mean like getting mugged yeah. or, or you're raped being or some death, terrible you're being thing? Incested, you're being right. you know, I mean, a traumatizing, overwhelming yeah, really a, a, a nasty battle. stuff. 
And then there's less intense but no less real traumatizations, the yeah. cumulative effect of which can be very traumatizing. So what we try to do then, we don't like that feeling of being out of control. So we push it out of our conscious awareness. But the fact it's out of our conscious awareness doesn't mean it doesn't live in our body, in our limbic system, in our body. So a triggering event is anything in the present which is resonant with the original trauma. For example, someone comes back from Iraq from the war. They're sitting at a red light. The next car to the backfires. They have a panic attack. So what happens, triggering events bring out these reenacted scenarios and so on. So a person gets help at how to find a safe way in the presence of someone to incrementally bring these experiences out at the feeling level to integrate them. So there's that. And if a person never gets triggered, they're still incomplete because they're holding inside of themselves things that they're not yet ready to. So their spirituality at one level is very authentic, but incomplete because it's being used as a psychological defense against feeling unfelt things that are still within them. They would be more whole if it would come out into the open so they could integrate it, accept it, learn to walk with it. Mm. And so on. It's always a very intimate, personal thing. I was a student of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi for many years, and he used to speak of trauma as being, like you said, imprinted in the nervous system as, as actually some neurophysiological, chemical or structural abnormality that you know, the intensity or the impact of stressful experiences would cause and that it gets lodged or held there and can, we can hang on to it for years or lifetimes. And that when you go deep enough in meditation, it would start to unravel or unwind. He, he used to call it unstressing. Sometimes we'd take like six-month meditation courses and you know, doing many, many hours of meditation per day and all kinds of stuff. It would be you know, really amazing what would start coming out. But you had the capacity to, to deal with it at that point, or at least most people did. Hey, and by the way, there's such a big movement today like, Compassionate therapy with the brain in mind, Dan Siegel and mindfulness practice, Bonnie Botnick, others that are working on medit- on mindfulness practice as a therapeutic intervention that provides and helps people to integrate these dimensions. And then for some people, that can segue into the spiritual implications of mindfulness. Yeah, It kind of goes beyond simply not being symptomatic anymore but how to be realized in this unitive state of wholeness and so on. Now, that other question that I asked you, we didn't quite get to it. Uh, Myla from the U.S., how does a Christian mystic understand the crucifixion and resurrection? Is it literal, historical, or symbolic, or both? Well, I think the sense of it is that the crucifixion is literal. The crucifixion happened, and uh, the death of Jesus happened. My sense of the resurrection is a trans-historical event. In other words, if there were to be, like, say, motion-sensitive cameras inside the tomb where Christ was buried, I don't think you'd see all of a sudden where he sits up and unwraps himself and rubs his <laughs> eyes and gets up or a flash of light or an angel comes and folds a cloth for him and rolls the stone back. I think it's an ahistorical, trans-historical event that Jesus lives and then the mystery of the Christian is that we live also. See, the deathless, the resurrection of Jesus then is our poetic metaphor for the deathless nature of ourselves. So I think the mystical dimension of it is this, that 
uh, Jesus says, follow me, and Jesus takes us to the cross. The cross is the crucifixion of our dreaded and cherished illusions that anything less or other than an infinite union with infinite love will ever be enough for us. That's the cross. Mm. Thomas Merton once said, there's something inside of us we must struggle with very hard where it will destroy us. This is the cross in our life. It's some self-destructive pattern, whatever it is. But by dying to that through love, then the eternal life, the mystery of the resurrected life, manifests itself in us. And that's how I think it's understood. Hmm. And I think the mystics are saying, ultimately, we're addicted to the finite. We're addicted to the finite as being an adequate base of operations. And so we learn to break the thread of over-identifying with the finite so that the infinity that shines out through the finite can be realized. Yeah. Obviously, by what you just said, I, I would assume that you don't take the Bible necessarily literally in all things. Was Jesus born of a virgin or... Did he really bodily rise from the dead and somehow the stone got rolled back? So you have no trouble seeing parts of it as allegorical and parts of it as literal? Well, I, well it's, a, it's kind of complicated in a way. You know, the Gospels were written, some, I think the first one, some 30 years after Jesus. They were oral traditions right. handed down and they were collected stories. So there's the, the, the historicity of the story of Jesus of Nazareth as an historical figure in the trial and the death of Jesus. I think all that's historical. Sure. And I also, I don't think the, the resurrection of Jesus is factual, but it's not allegorical either. The resurrection is a mystery of faith. It's a mystery of faith. It's, it's, it's incarnate infinity. It's the deathless nature of God identified with our deathless nature manifested perfectly in our midst the resurrected life. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a faith consciousness, kind of a resurrection consciousness, I think. Well, the other day when I listened to you in your podcast tell about Mary Magdalene going into the tomb and finding Jesus' body gone, the stone rolled back, but then he appeared to her. And, you know, the way I interpreted that from my worldview of things is that no problem. I mean, his physical body was gone in one way or the other, but we have a subtler body than just even when we're alive, we do. We have an astral body, we have a celestial body. And a being of that magnitude, of that level of enlightenment, could probably immediately begin functioning and interacting with people in a celestial body. And he said, didn't he? He said, I have not yet ascended to my father. So he was perhaps in some intermediate stage there, still in his subtle body and able to interact with people who were in their gross bodies. And then probably he moved on and up after that. That's right, transcosmic consciousness. Thomas Merton once said of the ascension of Jesus ascending into heaven. He said, how does the second person of the Trinity ascend to the first person of the Trinity? He said, the ascension was for our sake, like waving goodbye. Yeah. But the trans, the transcosmic reality of the Christ reality is symbolized in these stories, which are the truth of which is realized in our faith and in our prayer in our way. Same with all these traditions. You take the Bhagavad Gita, if you really go into the depth and the richness of these poetic metaphorical stories, they allude to realizations of the divine and are called to be transformed in those and live by those and share those mystery with other people. You just mentioned the Trinity and a question came in from Dan in London. Maybe you've actually partly answered this, but maybe you could say more. Would you be able to explain the Holy Trinity from a mystical point of view? 
Richard Rogers did a book on the Trinity, and Cynthia Rojo did one also. That's you and Richard and Cynthia, right? The whole Trinity? (laughs) I didn't write one on the Trinity. Cynthia wrote hers, The Law of Three. And then Richard, the the Universal Christ, A New Name for Everything, the one on the Trinity is escaping me right now. And the Trinity is a lovely book. But uh, I'll share a brief, uh, uh, please explain the Trinity. We have four minutes kind of thing. I'll offer a poetic thing about it. The Trinity is that is a God's ineffable and hidden. The Say that again, is, God is ineffable. God's ineffable and hidden beyond relations, hidden. beyond terms, beyond the unknowability of God utterly. And the unknowable mystery of, unmanifested mystery of God is manifested as Trinity, which is manifested in divine relations of knowledge and love. So the relation of knowing is called Father or Abba, patriarchal society or mother. And God is origin of God, that from all eternity, God the Father, Eckhart says, like a woman in labor, is giving birth to God. So God the Father is eternally expressing himself as his word. So as as a kenosis, he's infinitely emptying the total reality of himself as the word. So the word was with God and the word was God. And the, the second person of the Trinity, the word of God, and the God the Father eternally contemplate each other. And the love arising between them is the Holy Spirit. So the mystery is this, the mystery is this. If you would go and try to find God the Father, who's in any way whatsoever dualistically other than the Son or the Holy Spirit, you'd look and look and never find, because there is no God the Father. Because God's totality of the Father is completely poured out in and as the mystery of the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you try to find the second person of the Trinity, you'd look, there is no second person of the Trinity who's dualistically other than the Father or the Holy Spirit. If you look for the Holy Spirit, dualistically other, because distinction and unity, unity and distinction, transsubjective communion. And then what we're saying is this, from all eternity, God the Father eternally contemplates in the Word the eternal possibility of you, hidden with Christ and God forever. So we would try to find you, who's in any way dualistically other than God, Ultimately, you'd look and look and look. There is no you this dualistically other than God. Because who you are is who God eternally knows that you are, hidden with Christ and God before the origins of the universe. And that you is the you that never, 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 never began. Because God has never, never, never not known who you are. And the you that was never born is you that will never die. And that you is the you that's realized in the mystical experience in an infused way through faith. Kind of sounds like what I was trying to get at earlier on. If if God is all-pervading, then how can there be anything which is not God? And also what you just said reminds me of something from the Upanishads, which says something like, this is full, that is full. Taking fullness from fullness, fullness remains. Elizabeth from Colorado again wants to know, are you familiar with the uh, Course in Miracles material? Yeah, I love The Course in Miracles, yeah. Okay, she has a question about it then. She said, since you're familiar with that, what's your sense of it? Is it authentic to the essence of the spirit of the teachings of Jesus, as you understand them? Yes, in in this sense. You know, the it's a very mysterious book, really. It it just started coming to this woman, like automatic writing. Just put it out, see. That which is real cannot be threatened. That which is unreal cannot exist. Herein lies the peace of God. And talks about Christ consciousness in those mystical terms. It's helped a lot of people. So in that sense, it has the mystical authenticity to it. But it's not consistent with the theological heritage 
of how we would understand Christ and Trinity and incarnation and so on. But it's mystically or spiritually authentic as a spiritual work that touches the hearts of people and, and helps them. Was it said to have been uh, dictated, as it were, by by Jesus? Is, is he the she author was, and she's just sort well, of the scribe? She, well, she disavowed it. It's interesting, as I understand her. I think she's passed away now. She disavowed it. But then she, like it stood on its own for what it was, and when it was over, it was over. But I think it stands on its own. Like the beauty of it is the presence of God and the beauty of it. Like this, I, I think she, she didn't know what to make of it. She just It's like something that had, it was one of these. That's why they're mystical awakenings, that's why there are some people that are dealing in these traditions outside of world religions, with certain poets, and certain artists, and certain philosophers, and those who serve the poor. You know, there's the vibrancy of this mystical consciousness outside these lineages of traditions. And the Course in Miracle would stand outside of the orthodoxy of that, in a certain mystical consciousness of Christ. And I would understand it that way. But I love the Course in Miracles. It's beautiful. Christian iconography and stories are full of references to divine beings, such as angels, and there's a whole hierarchy of, what do they call them, seraphim and all those different yeah, things. Yeah, cherubim and seraphim, yeah, and, yes, and uh, All these sort of celestial realms, and, and then Jesus himself appears to be interceding in human affairs, and many people have seen him or heard from him, and there are people who claim to be channeling Mary Magdalene and so on. So, I mean, is your sense that there actually is a kind of a celestial realm that is highly populated by all kinds of... Um, divine beings, and that they are very much concerned with what happens to us here on earth and engage with us in in various subtle ways. Yeah, and I put this in the introduction I sent you when Maureen died when I was with her. And and I quoted there that that as I was sitting with her, she was dying. I remember something that Thomas Merton told us at the monastery after one of these old monks died. He said, it's important to realize that when we die, we don't go anywhere. He said, you don't orbit the earth a few times and go to God. <laughs> you know, he said, in God we live and move and have our being. So all the angels are here, all those who have crossed over are here, and the interconnectedness of the spiritual order, it's all here. And these presences, these incorporeal angelic presences, incorporeal beings who have crossed over beyond history into God, they're all here. And they can communicate and convey their presence to us in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. There's just a kind of a natural faith or a certain sensitivity that, you know, there are more things in heaven and earth, Arashio, that are dreamt of in your philosophy. Yeah. And so there are things beyond what the physical eyes can see that we can learn to live by as the truth we recognize in our heart. Yeah, actually, I found that passage in the, the thing you sent me. You said, all the angels, along with all the blessed who have crossed over into God, are here with us in the vast interiority of God, in whom we subsist as one, as light subsists in flame. As a matter of fact, I think, you know, the Buddhists say there are 10,000 worlds and I've traveled through them all. And something that happens in meditative paths is that in deep meditation, we're allowing our customary boundaries to fall into the background. And there's a kind of boundaryless vulnerability that calls for a certain kind of trust or a certain kind of prudent courage where all of a sudden one's previous assumptions. I like Martin Heidegger's understanding of transcendence is that which actively surpasses all set limits. So in a moment of wonder, if you were to draw a circle around it, try to inscribe it, that which you're experiencing 
would breach the circumference of that circle and would do so playfully, as that which it likes to do. And that boundaryless mystery is giving and granting itself to us in the concreteness of our breath, our beating heart, the next person who walks into the room. And we're really trying to sensitize ourselves to that and live in openness to it. What is your um, sense of the value of effort versus grace? Marie from the USA asked, what is grace? Well, there's that old story, you know, the, the footprints on the beach and, you know, and at a certain point, the guy said uh, yeah, yeah. he was having a rough time. And you, you tell the story and, and talk about grace. <laughs> you mean the two sets of footprints? Yeah, yeah one exactly. Of, I think. Yeah, he's walking along. And, and what is it that the person is walking along with whatever the divine figure is? Yeah. And then there's just one set of footprints. And he thought God had abandoned him. And he said, no, at that here, point, here I, was, I had picked you up. Carried. I was carrying you. Yeah. yeah. Here's my sense of it. Let's put it this way. To be a seeker is to be an intimately awakened by the intimacy of that which cannot be explained. That is, the grace is that which simply appears without effort is the grace. See, it's not, it's not the consequence of effort. We put it this way, it's all up to God and it's all up to us. If I don't commit myself to a life of prayer and meditation, there will be no life of prayer and meditation. But the very desire to commit myself to that is a grace. And the fulfillment that I seek in it is a fulfillment that comes to me as a granting and not the consequence of effort. I may never have realized the unitive state had I not tried very, very hard to commit myself to it. But if realized, it has about it the quality, which I know cannot be explained in terms of the consequence of my effort. I'll put it another way in terms of love. Two people who love each other very, very much. I'll put it another way. That when we don't know someone very well, it's easy to express our opinions about them. Let me tell you about so-and-so. When we've loved someone very, very deeply for a long, long time, and we're asked to explain who that person is to us, we don't know what to say. And our heart breaks when we try. And we're grateful for having been rendered whole by having our heart broken by love. So the love is the grace. And the grace grew in wayward fidelity to being faithful to it. So there's always the effort. The effort is an openness to a grace that empowers us to make the effort. And the grace transcends the effort. Somehow when I hear the word grace, I'm reminded of that knock and the door shall be open, seek and you shall find that verse that if you take some initiative, even take a lot of Indian gurus also say, take one step toward me, I'll take a thousand steps toward you. If you show some interest, some initiative, some desire for God, then, you know, it's as if God says, okay, we got a live one here. Let's give him yes, some sir. juice. You know, let's, let's start to give him opportunities to um, pursue this impulse. It's true. You see this in marriage counseling, too, where people come in and say things are in deep trouble. The first question is, if it is possible to save this marriage, do you want to save it? As long as the desire to save it is there, there's something to work with. So it's the desire to go deeper into this that keeps alive the possibility of going deeper into this. And so we're always being faithful to the desire and then kind of the artistry. That's why the mystics are so helpful in offering guidance in this. The how do I actualize the desire? What is the wisdom of the path along which the deepening occurs? Because the ego is subject to self-deception. 
you know, we, we get veered off track and get confused. I was listening to your podcast, you were taking questions, and there was some guy said, who said, you know, I've been um, kind of on the path for many, many years now, and regular meditator, and all this stuff, but it's gotten really difficult for me, and I'm beginning to feel very frustrated, and it's like I can't really continue. And you said, well, you know, just go easy on yourself. Take a break. Watch reruns of Seinfeld. Stop meditating for a while. You know, what the heck? <laughs> you can always yeah, come back to it. Yeah. That every beat of your heart is the gift. Your life is the gift. Going over to close the kitchen window is a gift. Like, step back into the gift of the ordinariness. Back off a little bit and let it come to you. You know, sometimes we try so hard, we drive away what we're looking for. We strain. We struggle. We strain with it. Instead of it's the stance of the artist or the stance of the lover, there's a kind of non-impositional sincerity that kind of forms the path, actually, I think. Like you said about that guy that was holding a candle so it would burn his fingers if he fell asleep. It's like, you know, chill, dude. I meant to ask, though, um, have you encountered very many people who have dedicated their lives to spirituality for a long time who are feeling like it has not amounted to anything? Or do you almost universally feel that if where there's a will, there's a way, and if people have been sincere about it, it bears fruit? Well, I would say in my retreats that I give, and people would come to me for therapy because they want spirituality to be a resource in their therapy and so on. But they haven't given up on it where they wouldn't come to the retreats. So they're still hanging in there. But I have talked to people in therapy who have given up on their spirituality. I have talked to them. Because they felt like it wasn't working for them? They weren't getting anything out of it? It just wasn't working. That's right. But then what we find is, is that by then their integrity on working on their healing path is their spirituality. In other words, there's a deep intuition inside of you that your life is worth saving. It has an innate value that can't be calculated. And that which motivates you to be faithful to the gift of your life, you might not put it in those terms, but that's a very deep spirituality. Yeah. The phrase, your life worth saving, are you contacted by many young people or or is it mostly people our age? And the reason I ask is, you know, there's a high incidence of suicide among the young. And I think that's really tragic. And whenever the subject comes up, anything that I or my guests could say that might save a life, you know, that might inspire a person to discover something more deep and meaningful and, and not take that course of action is well worth spending a little time on. I used to be involved with youth a lot years ago because I taught seniors at an all-boys Jesuit prep school in Cleveland, taught religion. And I found that if you talked about dogma or doctrine, they weren't that interested. But how to experience God and find God, they were very... I used to take a group every year to the monastery down to get seminated. You'd get up at 2.30 in the morning to chant with the monks and We did courses on prayer and death and different things. But I've not really worked with youth significantly since then, because I I don't work with the adolescent population or the children. I haven't. But younger adults come to my retreats. You know, seekers come to my retreats. They're there on the retreats. But it it tends to be people who are a bit more along in the journey. Are you still teaching retreats? I do. Well, now with the pandemic, pandemic, when my wife got sick. About three years ago, I stopped because I couldn't leave her. And now, with uh, the pandemic and so on, I can. But through the living school, through the podcast, I can teach at home. You know, I teach from my home and through my writing and different things. And who I don't know how long I'm going to be on the earthly plane. Who knows? But if the 
the pandemic dies down, I may resume some giving these silent retreats, different places. And uh, I would like to do that. We'll see what happens. In our remaining minutes, uh, let's start by giving people sort of a clear outline of in what ways they could engage with you. There's your podcast that I mentioned, and I'll be linking to that in the show notes. You can sign up on iTunes or Stitcher or any of those things. They could go to my website, that's CACMeetForMe, jamesfinley.org. Mm-hmm. I'm showing and you a lot on the of, screen right yeah, now. Yeah, a lot of things are there. And then there's the podcast, Turning to the Mystics. Also, I have an online course through CAC on the interior castle of, of Teresa. And they were just able to liberate, they thought they had lost it for a while, on mystical sobriety, on the mystical dimensions of the steps of AA. So there's the podcast, there's the online courses, and also, which sounds true, I did several audio sets, the Merton's Path to the Palace of Nowhere, Christian Meditation, and Indestructible Joy in the Teachings of Meister Eckhart. And then with Richard Rohr, I did a set, The Divine Ambush on St. John of the Cross, and Following the Mystics Through the Narrow Gate. On he did that with Const- Sounds True? With Richard Rohr. That was with Richard Rohr. With Richard, CAC. okay. With Richard Rohr is Following the Mystics Through the Narrow Gate. And Jesus and Buddha, I'm finding the four noble truths of the Buddha in the heart of the gospel. So you can find all this on the CAC, on CAC website. If you go to Center for Action Contemplation, you'll see those audio video sets there. And I have this book I'm working on. I hope I finish it on um, the contemplative dimension, how to be a healing presence in an all too often traumatized and traumatizing world. And so I'm writing that book now on my sense of the spiritual dimensions of the healing of trauma. And then there'll be another volume after that. I got to go into, it was first through Sounds True with Carolyn Mace on transforming trauma. But then I got a grant from Fetzer Institute, a more developed form of that. So I hope to do a second volume. It's been transcribed and so on, on more the clinical formal sense of that. How to be a contemplative clinician, how to be a contemplative patient. What's the depth dimension of the healing encounter? But this first one is more for sincere seekers Seeking the Interior Dimensions of Healings. I'm writing that. And I have a few other unpublished manuscripts that are trying to help me get published. I'm, I'm slow. I'm persistent, but slow. Well, it's really it's inspiring what you've done with your life, how you've just dedicated it to your own personal exploration and then translating that into the benefit for other people. I guess that's what the Center for Action and Contemplation means. Mm. You know, you contemplate yeah. and go deep, and then you act and uh, share the, the fruits of your contemplation. So I think your life has been an inspiring example. I'll end on this little note on following this path, is to find your practice and practice it. And it practices any act and fidelity to which it takes you to the deeper place. And little by little, your whole life becomes practice. The second is to find your teaching and follow it. And a teaching is any teaching that bears witness to this unit of state of consciousness we're talking about and offers guidance in it. And then you realize that all life is your teacher. And thirdly, find your community and follow it. It's just one other person in whose presence you're not alone, which is the value of your podcast and similar ones, is this resonance and interconnectedness with each other. And eventually you realize that the whole world is your community. And I find those three guidelines to be very helpful frames of reference for us on this path. Yeah, those are great. And the resources are there. It is possible to find your practice and your community and all these things. 
again, seek and you shall find. If you have the sincere intention, then opportunities present themselves. What I do with this podcast is, you know, I try to offer a smorgasbord. And, you know, obviously, there's no one thing that's going to be for everybody. And all things can't be for any one person because there's only so much time in life. You can't do everything. But I hope to just um, give people a taste of this teaching and that teacher and so on and so forth and find something you resonate with. Yeah, and that's why I agreed to do this. I don't accept all these invitations, but I, I just sense in the integrity and the quality of what you do. I just sense the affinity with what I do, like monasteries and cyberspace. You know, we kind of <laughs> we're all interwoven with each other, yeah. like this. And the more interconnection that goes on, the better off the world is. Really, yeah, so, it's a collaborative uh, effort. Really, it is. It is. Yeah. yeah. Well, I felt that too. And and you and I chatted a year or two ago. And I, I guess, you know, you're at that point, you're saying, well, my website's not ready and this and that. So you know, this just felt like the right time to do it. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad we did it. Yeah, me too. Well, thanks so much, Jim. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a fun week listening to your podcast. I've been doing a lot of walking in the woods, which you've done a lot in your life. And all the while listening to your podcast. And uh, it's been great having this conversation. Thank you. I'm so glad I did it. Yeah. It was great. Thank you. So to those who've been listening or watching, um, as usual, there will be a page on batgap.com about this interview with links to all the appropriate things, the websites and the books and, and everything. So go there. If you happen to be listening to this in your car, you don't have to write things down. Just when you get home, look at that page and you can hop over to uh, Jim's books or website and so on. Thanks for listening or watching and we'll see you next week. And thanks again, Jim. Take care. Thank you so much.